The following presentation is coming to you from the Diocese of Orange, California, the home of Christ Cathedral, where the Catholic faith is made crystal clear. This is SJEN-TV. My brothers and sisters, please rise at this moment. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, the Lord be with you. Bestow your spirit upon your people, Lord, as we prepare to enter into Holy Week. And during this week, help us to walk with Christ, to rediscover the meaning behind everything we do in the faith, in our church, in our lives. Help us to come to the foot of the cross and to discover our Lord who gave his life for us and celebrate the glory of his resurrection. Bless us this evening, Lord. We ask this through Christ our Lord, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated, my brothers and sisters. Well, what a blessing it is. We're just getting ready for Holy Week, and we're going to look at two chapters in Luke's Gospel. We've been going through the Gospel the last couple weeks, and we have to take kind of a big jump. We have to go all the way to chapter 22 and 23. I want to talk especially about the Last Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ and the way that he was handed over. Very important points in the Gospel. I love Holy Week. I love everything about Holy Week, Holy Week, all the celebrations. There's only one thing I don't like about Holy Week is sometimes because of the way the Mass schedule is in a lot of churches, Masses every hour and a half, hour 40 minutes, the, that because of all the readings that we have, the extra reading, the extra gospel on Palm Sunday, sometimes there's not enough time to really get into that long gospel reading that we have. And, and so this is an opportunity to really look at this reading we will have this Sunday for Palm Sunday. So let's go to Luke chapter 22. Are you ready? Yeah. Luke chapter 22. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and engaged to give him money. So he agreed and sought an opportunity to betray to them, to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. So I'm gonna, I want to stop right here. So what is, the, what is the difference between the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover? Well, if you go all the way back to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 12 and Exodus 13, you'll see that God gave Mo Moses and Israel the Passover, and the Passover occurred during which plague? How many plagues were there? There were 10 plagues altogether, and it was during the 10th plague that the Israelites celebrated the Passover, and it was, it was every single house that celebrated the Passover. They kept the feast. Their homes were marked with the blood of the unblemished Passover lamb, they were spared from that plague, which was the death of the firstborn. Every house that didn't celebrate the Passover, that did not have their house marked with the blood of the unblemished Passover lamb, they were not spared. Wow, well, we know that that lamb was a type of 
Christ. And the Passover meal itself is so important because it prepares us to understand the Eucharist. And it's at, it's at the celebration of the Passover that our Lord institutes the Eucharist. During the time of Jesus, the Passover and the feast that followed it was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Feast of Unleavened Bread lasted for seven more days, eight days altogether. The Passover was celebrated on the 14th of Nisan, and then, that's a month, by the way, it's not a car. The 14th of Nisan was, is a month, it's 1S, by the way. And then, after that, was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. During the time of Jesus, though, the name unleavened bread was sometimes used as a general name for the Passover. So when you're reading the New Testament, sometimes you see the Passover, you know, called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, even though technically in the beginning they were two feasts. So you can, you can see that here because it says, now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And then it talks about the chief priests and the scribes. They're seeking to get Jesus. How many chief priests were there, by the way? How many high priests were there? There was Annas, and who was the other one? Caiaphas. Well, what was going on there? Why, why two of them? Well, Annas was high priest, and then the Romans kind of figured out how to manipulate the high priesthood, and so they would try to put new ones in every few years. So Annas's sons became high priests, you know, when the Romans kind of went in and wanted to change things. And he ran out of sons, so his son-in-law, Caiaphas, became high priest. But maybe Annas was kind of behind the scenes pulling a few strings there because you see him, Annas is kind of there, even though Caiaphas is the official high priest, quote-unquote, Annas is also there as well. So, you know, you, you, you see his presence in the gospel narrative. You know, it, there's a lot more that could be said about that. And then it goes on and it says in verse 3 that Satan entered Judas Iscariot, who was of the twelve, and he went and he conferred with the high priest. He's going to basically sell Jesus for how many pieces of silver is he going to get? 30 pieces of silver. That's a very important number because if a slave was struck and died, guess what the owner was paid? 30 pieces of silver for his life, according to the book of Exodus. Isn't that interesting? Like the price of the life of a slave was 30 pieces of silver, and that's what our Lord was sold for. And in one way, it's providential because Jesus came to serve, to give his life for our salvation. So he, he made himself a servant and a slave, and fittingly, he was sold for 30 pieces of silver. The, the prophet Amos talks about how the unjust will sell the righteous for silver, or, you know, like their life is not even worth anything, to, you know. So you'll find the concept of selling the righteous for silver a few times in the book of Amos, even for a pair of sandals. And it goes on, and so Judas went away. In verse 7, it says that then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house which he enters and tell the householder the teacher says to you where 
is the guest room where I am to eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished. There make, there make ready. And they went and they found it as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. I love this section about all these instructions. Go there, do this, go into the city. And I want to I go to the, to the book of Proverbs. Let's go to the book of Proverbs for a little bit. I want to look at chapter 9 in the book of Proverbs. This is really interesting. So if you go to Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 9, it talks about wisdom. Proverbs is all about discovering not worldly wisdom, but God's wisdom. And God's wisdom only comes through the divine revelation that God gave his people. And wisdom is from the Lord. And as if one wants to seek wisdom, they're going to seek to do the Lord's will. And they're going to study the Torah. Especially the book of wisdom has this concept of loving God, loving what he, how he has revealed himself. And so if you go to chapter 9 of Proverbs, it says, Wisdom has built her house she has set up her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beast. She has mixed her wine. She has also set up her table. She has sent out her maids to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who is without sense, she says, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave simpleness and live and walk in the way of insight. So what's going on here? Basically what the book of Proverbs is saying is that God has prepared it so that we could feast on wisdom, which begins with the fear of the Lord. He's done everything to prepare this feast. Okay, you see where I'm going? What does that have to do with the Last Supper? Well, look at this. Jesus is giving instructions to his disciples. And... Everything is being prepared so our Lord can celebrate the Last Supper and institute the Eucharist and give us the gift of the Eucharist. So you see a little bit of the connection. God has done all this preparation. Why aren't you feasting on God's wisdom? Now you see our Lord Jesus doing all this preparation for the Last Supper, not just for his disciples, but for the church from generation to generation. Are you going to come to this feast? every day if you can and so the you know the way that it that everything falls into place it's it's like our lord says go out there it's going to happen god's divine providence is going to make this happen so let's now go to go to chapter 22 verse 14 are you ready and it says and when the hour came he sat at table and the apostles with him and he said to them I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. These two verses, verses 14 and 15, are extremely important. And, and the reason why they're so important is it's almost like, you know, our Lord is kind of bending the language a little bit here. Um, he's, he's saying that with this desire, I have desired to eat this supper with you this Passover with you before I suffer. It's a, it's a very common way of saying things in Hebrew in the Old Testament where they'll kind of use two different words to say something. You know, dying you will die if you eat the fruit of the forbidden tree and so forth. You know, it's often translated, surely you will die. And so 
Our Lord is expressing this great desire that he has to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. I've earnestly desired, or I have desi with a desire I have desired. The word for desire, epithumia in Greek, it's usually a negative word. Not always, but it's very often negative. Paul talks about how the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. There's a conflict, okay? And so the New Testament often uses this word in, in a negative context. Don't follow your desire. Follow Christ. What do people tell you today? Follow, follow what? Follow your what? Follow your heart. Have you heard that one before? Follow your heart? I, I mean, sometimes, you know, even when, you know, seminarians are discerning. I work in a seminary, and sometimes seminarians are discerning, and people say, oh, how wonderful. You want to be a priest? Follow your heart. And you know what I tell them? Don't tell them, no, I will follow Christ. Because that's true. We don't want to follow our hearts, right? The next time somebody says that to you, oh, how wonderful. Follow your heart. Tell them, no, absolutely not. I want to follow Christ. And, and, and they'll you know, get them to think about that. That's what we want to do. We want to follow our Lord. It's, but our Lord here talks about one great desire. And that's to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. The Passover in which he will institute the Eucharist, my brothers and sisters. And the reason I highlight this is, do you have the same desire when you come to Mass? Do you have the same desire when you listen to the Word of God proclaimed? When you come forward to receive our Lord in the Holy Eucharist, do you have the same desire? I hope that we all do. So let us continue on. We'll go to verse 16 now. And he, and he says, For I tell you, I shall not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I shall not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after supper, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant of my blood. Now there's a couple of things I, I want to say here that you know, when Jews traditionally celebrated the Passover, they have a tradition you can, even to this day, where there's four cups of wine. you got to like that. There's four cups of wine. And, it, it, and you can see this tradition in a certain way, even being practiced when our Lord is celebrating the Passover. Because the third cup is sometimes referred to as the cup of blessing or the cup of benediction. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, talks about the cup of blessing or the cup of benediction, which is the third cup implying that that is the cup that Jesus took when he said, this is the blood of the new and eternal covenant, okay? That's pretty interesting. So Luke kind of gives us, he gives us a few of the cups here. He gives us the second cup and the third cup in this little section here. But there's a couple things I want to say. The first thing I want to say is, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? The Gospels go out of their way not to throw any emphasis on the Passover lamb. Isn't that amazing if you think about that? You know, like, why aren't they talking about Jesus grabbing lamb chops or something like that? There's, there's no emphasis on the Passover lamb. And, that, and, and the Passover lamb was the center of the Passover. And the emphasis is on Christ, our Lord. So that's very important. 
Another thing that's very important is this, that uh, in Luke's gospel, if you look closely, he says in verse 20, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The, con the concept of blood being poured out reminds us of Exodus 24, when Mor Moses poured out blood, and then he sprinkled it on the people and sprinkled it on the altar, and, and, the, and God made a covenant with his people in Exodus chapter 24, blood that is poured out. And so this is very important language that's used here. Another thing that's really important is the concept of remembering, remembering. It's, it's a much broader concept than we have in English or Spanish. Jesus is not saying, just think of me, just think of me. He's not saying that. Go back to the Old Testament and look at how this concept is used in Hebrew. The word is zachar, zachar. And if you, if you go to, for instance, Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, it, right after it, it had rained for 40 days and 40 nights, and the earth was covered with water, time has passed, and then suddenly it says, and God remembered Noah. Well, what was going on there? Did God forget who Noah was? Did he go, oh my goodness, what the flood? Where is he? No, that's not what happened. The word remembrance is such an important term because once God remembers Noah, everything changes. Now he fulfills all the promises that are made to Noah. He acts on those promises. He fulfills those promises made to Noah. You'll see the same language in the Psalms. Lord, remember me. Psalm 132, remember David and all his afflictions. And so you have this, this concept of remembrance, which is different than what we have in English or Spanish. It's not just think about this. It, 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 it's connected to the covenant fidelity and action of our Lord. And, and so do this in remembrance of me. We will celebrate this as a very expression of the new and eternal covenant until Christ comes again. Continuing on, there's much more that could be said there. What's also interesting is, is Jesus takes the bread, the unleavened bread, what would be called the matzah, and he says, this is my body. He takes the, cup, the third cup of wine, he says, this is my blood. He transforms the Passover. He celebrates the Passover, but he transforms it, and he gives us the Passover, the new and eternal covenant, which we call the Mass or the Sacred Liturgy. What else could I, I tell you here? There's much more that probably could be said. The last thing I want to say is the concept of new covenant, verse 20. He says, this, this cup is poured out for you. This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Notice that it's in Jesus' blood, not in the blood of bulls or goats, but in his blood. And in the word new covenant, you only find it in Luke's gospel, by the way. Who was the prophet who talked about a new covenant? Well, a number of prophets did. Hosea talked about a new covenant. Isaiah talked about a new covenant. But the most important one is Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 to 34. Any of you guys 31 years old? No? None of you? All right. You're a young crowd here. So... If you, if you want to remember one verse in the Old Testament, just remember 3131, Jeremiah 3131. And why is this verse important? Because Jeremiah talks about the day that the Lord will make a new covenant, but it will be different than the covenant that he made 
at Mount Sinai. And that's so important to understand everything that St. Paul is talking about with the Romans, the Galatians, and in many of his other letters. Because Paul's trying to explain to his people that Christ has fulfilled that promise that Jeremiah, that the Lord made through Jeremiah of a new and eternal covenant. What's amazing is Jesus doesn't use the word covenant. The covenant is so important. It's the covenant relationship between God and his people. That's the relationship that we want to be part of and enter in and live out. But Jesus doesn't use the word covenant through his ministry. He waits, he waits, he waits until the Last Supper, until the moment when he institutes the Eucharist, then he finally uses that word covenant. And that's what makes it so important when we read the words of institution. What's also interesting, too, is if you look closely, it says, if you go to verse 19, it says four verbs here. Look at these four verbs. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke and he and gave it to them. Those four verbs, to take, give thanks, break, give, they're a chain of verbs. And you see that chain of verbs, you see, you see take, bless or give thanks, break, give, when Jesus multiplies the loaves. It's very interesting. And then you see take, give thanks, break, give, when Jesus celebrates the Last Supper. And where else do you see it in Luke's Gospel? Where do you think the third time is that you see it in Luke's Gospel? The road to Emmaus. Exactly. Isn't it? Now, do you think this is an accident, that it just happens to be the same thing? Take, bless, or give thanks, break, give, when he has the multiplication, the Eucharist, and then also road to Emmaus. What's interesting also is to give thanks. The word... Eucharist, it comes from the verb, which, which means to give thanks, the, the word for Eucharist. And so um, there's, there's much here just in the words of institution. Let's go forward a little bit to verse 21. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another. Which of them it was that would do this? A dispute arose among them. Which of them was to be regarded as the greatest? And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves, for which is the greater one who sits at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who sits at table? But I am among you as one who serves. Now, isn't this beautiful? Jesus is talking about somebody's going to betray me and hand me over. And what are his disciples worried about? What are they worried about? Who's the greatest? You know, hello, did you just miss that? <laughs> You know, but, you know, spiritual blindness, you see this, you see the, the you know, the, this concept of, you know, just not being able to understand what the Lord is doing. You see it among his disciples, but we have to be honest. We see it in our own lives many times. 
that you know our Lord wants to do something and we're completely blind to it. We're not even open to what he wants to do. And all of us could probably look at moments in our life where we were like that. And what's, you know, maybe part of the conversion process is, is looking at our own lives and just saying, where has the spiritual blindness been in my life? And, and so that, what do I need to change so that I could better understand the Lord's will? Of course, we have to die to ourselves. We have to die to all that we want. And Jesus makes it very simple that, that you know, don't make yourself great. Put yourself as a servant of others. And, and that's exactly what he came to do. Of course, Isaiah chapter 53 talks about the suffering servant you might be familiar with. It starts in chapter 52, right around verse 12 or 13, and it runs through chapter 53. And there are many references in the Gospels to the suffering servant in Isaiah. Often they're implied references. Let's go to verse 28. He says, "'You are those who have continued with me in my trials.'" As my father appointed a kingdom for me, so do I appoint for you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. And he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And he said, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow this day until you three times deny that you know me. Now, look at what our Lord is saying. Simon, Satan has demanded to sift all of you. He's talking plural, in plural. Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat. Plural. We don't have the plural in English. Read a Spanish Bible, you'll see it's ustedes. It's in plural. In Greek, it's in plural. And read it in a different language, Italian, it's in plural. And then suddenly it switches to singular. But I have prayed for you, Simon. Now, this is an amazing verse. All the other disciples are there. They're all talking about who's greater. He tells them you need to be servants. And then he tells Peter... I'm praying especially for you that you don't get sifted like wheat. This is really one of those verses where when you, when you read it a few times and, and you see, well, it goes from plural and then suddenly singular, there's this focus on, on the ministry of Peter and even the name change from Simon to Peter. And, and you have to sit there and you have to, you have to look at it and go, wow, this is amazing. Look at, look at what Jesus is doing. All of his disciples are there and he's especially pointing at the fact, I'm praying for you, Peter, that you don't get sifted like wheat. And of course, you know, we know it has to do with Peter's trial. You know, the fact that you know, he's going to deny our Lord three times, but also has to do with Peter's office. His ministry, the ministry that will continue after him, which we know is the papacy. And so this is, this is one of those verses that we'll often look at as Catholics and we'll say, this is really an amazing verse if you look closely at what Jesus is saying. And it's one to pray over, I would just say. Let's continue on here. So he tells Peter that he's going to deny him how many times? Three times. So when God made the covenant with Israel, they were all down at Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 19 and 24. Guess how many times they said, we will do all that the Lord has spoken. Three times. 
three times they said, we're going to do everything the Lord has spoken. Guess how many times they broke that? I couldn't tell you, all right? So then the prophet Hosea, if you go all the way to the prophet Hosea, Hosea talks about how God is going to renew his people. He's going to renew this marriage bond between him and his people. And he says, I will espouse myself to you. I will marry you. And guess how many times he says it? Three times. Isn't that beautiful? Just like they promised three times to obey the Lord, they didn't do it. Then the Lord says, Three times, it's kind of like saying this is going to be the marriage of all marriages. It's going to be the most excellent of all marriages. And here's our Lord saying that Peter's going to deny him three times. Wow. And, 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 but what's the difference between Peter and Judas? This is key to understanding each one of our lives with the Lord. What is the difference between Peter and Judas? Who are you going to follow? Are you going to follow the example of Peter? Well, you don't want to deny the Lord. Or the example of Judas? After you've realized that you've sinned, who would you follow? Peter had the courage to repent. Peter had the courage to return to the Lord. Peter had the confidence to ask the Lord for forgiveness. Judas didn't. And it's so important because many people don't have that confidence. They have done things wrong. They just get mad at the church. They, they justify their frustration with their anger. A lot of people are just angry. They hate the church. And you just ask them, do you want to be forgiven? Ask them that question. You don't even have to answer every single question. Just say, do you really want to be forgiven? I don't need to be forgiven. Yes, yes, we, we need Forgiveness. We have to ask God for forgiveness. We have to ask the Lord. We have to repent of our sins. That's the difference between every single one of us. Those who repent and have faith will receive God's forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. Those who don't want to repent and don't have faith, they're rejecting it. And so we have to go out and talk with people. And then in the simplest terms, just say, do you really want to be forgiven? Just ask them that question. Just say, what's the difference between Peter and and Judas. Judas didn't ask for forgiveness. Who are you going to be like? Okay. Obviously, don't deny Christ. Okay. Don't betray Christ. But, but in all of our brokenness, no matter what it is, we have to have the confidence to return to our Lord. And so Peter's going to deny, to deny our Lord three times. Of course, in John's Gospel, if you go to John chapter 21, that's where our Lord reinstates Peter three times. Verse 35. Verse 35, and he said to them, when I sent you out with no purse or bag or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let him who has a purse take it, and likewise a bag, and let him who has no sword sell his mantle and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was reckoned with transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Now, wait a minute. Jesus just said, if you don't have a sword, go out and buy one. I'm going to be persecuted. But his, his disciples don't, don't understand. They, they think he's talking about a, a physical sword. They don't understand that he's saying that you have to get ready. You have to prepare for this persecution. Of course, it's in Ephesians chapter 6 
that Paul tells the church. He says that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle. Ephesians chapter 6. You guys know this, right? And he, and he says that we have to put on what? The whole armor of God. Well, let's, let, let's see how he explains this. So if you go to Ephesians chapter 6, and we're just going to read a little section here, okay? He says this, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the equipment of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you can quench all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. What a beautiful reading, right? Because look at what Paul's saying. He's saying that, yes, pick up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Isn't that beautiful? Well, we're studying that right now. We're studying Holy Scripture right now. But our Lord, he's using, he's using metaphorical speech. He's He's talking about the fact that we're going to be persecuted for the faith. Are you prepared for persecution? Are you ready to be persecuted? Are you, when it happens, I was talking with this one priest. It was a beautiful conversation. I was telling him, oh, look at all these bad things happening. And look at, I mean, all these terrible things are happening. The church is going to be persecuted in all these ways. And you know what he said to me? He said, I have prepared my whole life for this day. And I said, whoa. Maybe I should have that attitude. And, and, and it's true. Will you be able to say that when persecution comes? When you're falsely accused? When you're hated? When you're rejected? Even when people do things against you? Will you be able to say, I have prepared my life for this day? Hopefully you will. And then you'll understand what our Lord was saying when he said, take up a sword. He was saying, get ready. Be prepared for when the persecution comes, because we will follow Christ when that happens. Verse 39, And he came out, and he went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, Father, if thou art willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came up to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And while he was still speaking, there came a crowd 
And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were about him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, we will strike with a sword. I'll stop right there. Look what he says first when they, get, when they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane at the Mount of Olives. It's right down at the bottom of the mountain. The Mount of Olives is right across. There's a valley between them and the temple. Any of you guys been to the Holy Land? Any of you been to Jerusalem? Okay, it's beautiful to go to the Mount of Olives and look down into the city. And Christ is praying with his disciples. Pray that you do not enter into temptation. We will be tempted in this life in every way. All of us will have different challenges, different trials. And many times those challenges will seem impossible. That's what happens is we get to the point where our challenge seems impossible. And it's at that moment that we have to have faith. A lot of times people, they'll come to the church with like the impossible challenge. Father, look at this. I already have four children. How can the church say that I should be open to life? Do you have faith? Do you trust the Lord? Have you given your marriage to the Lord? Have you given your life to the Lord? If you do, you'll be able to say, Lord, I don't know how this is going to happen, but I trust you. That's what Israel could not do. Israel could not say, we don't know how it's going to happen, but we trust you. And so the, in the scriptures, you always see God's people face with impossible circumstances, seemingly impossible circumstances. And that's where our temptations come. Our temptations come when we're weak, tired, asleep, angry, hungry. When you're really weak, that's when the devil gets you. And, and so it's something to be aware of, you know, in, in, in all of our lives. You know, when we hit a point, especially when we're weak, when we just go... I better be ready. Temptation may, be, may, may come upon me at this moment. And, and that's often where people really fall. There's, they're, they're in a difficult situation, and then they really fall into temptation. But then if we can help them and say, and we can encourage them, say, no, 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 no. Notice that temptation comes, especially when you're weak. And at that moment, that's when you need to ask God for help in the midst of temptation. And what were, he, what were his apostles doing? His disciples, the leaders of the church, what were they doing? Sleeping. And what do people do when during Holy Week, when we have long services that last an hour, two hours, three hours long what do they do i had mass one year and i was in san juan capistrano and i was really preaching it up come to the easter vigils the mother of all liturgies i want everybody there and and it, we celebrate the easter vigil it was a full church there's like over a thousand people it's packed with people it was awesome and then when we finished the vigil and they finally turned on all the lights and i was walking out i'm not exaggerating there was like a hundred, mostly young people, young kids, like a hundred of them against the walls going like this, sleeping. And, and what, what did I say? You guys are just like Jesus' disciples. But you see them in their weakness. You see them in their weakness. They're, they're sleeping. They're not ready. They're not ready for temptation. We have to be awake if we're going to be ready. And so Judas comes and he betrays Christ with a kiss. 
He betrays our Lord with a kiss. There's some beautiful images of, of kisses in the, in the Old Testament. If you remember the reconciliation of Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau. Esau was ready to kill Jacob. And they reconciled and he hugged his brother and he gave him a kiss. Isn't that beautiful? And then, then Joseph who reconciles with his brothers. And, and then... And here now we have Judas betraying our Lord. What would be a sign of love? He betrays our Lord. Comes and tries to betray him with a kiss. It's, it's the ultimate act of deception. He's only there to betray Christ. And so let's go on to verse uh, 49. And when those who were about him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? They're still thinking about the physical sword. They're ready to fight. But they're not ready for a real spiritual confrontation. See the irony here? They're sleeping. They're out of it. They misunderstand the Lord. They're not ready for the real spiritual confrontation. But they're ready for a physical one. Shall we strike with the sword? Verse 50. And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priests and the captains of the of the temple and the elders who had come out against him. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Now, isn't this amazing? If you go all the way back to the book of the Exodus, do you remember the Exodus? Remember when the plagues came? Remember when, when the first plague came, the Pharaoh went to his sorcerers and magicians, and they found a way to somewhat imitate the first plague. And he kind of went, eh. And then the second plague, and they kind of found a way to imitate the second plague. Eh. And then the third plague, and they, they said, we can't do that. We can't imitate this. They said, this is the finger of God. We can't, we can't imitate it. What did Pharaoh do? Hardened his heart. Why do I bring that up? Well, here's Jesus. He works a miracle right in their presence. He heals the ear of the servant of the high priest right away. Do they change? Do they say, oh, we got the wrong guy here. Sorry, let's get out of here. No. There's no change at all. They're, they're already hardened. Their hearts are already hardened. And they're not open to what our Lord wants. And, and you know, this is a question to ask yourself and to ask others. Do, have you hardened your heart to something that is against God's will. And you know what? Many people have. Talk with people about marriage. They've already hardened their heart to one opinion. Oh, we can do whatever we want. No, we have to be open to God's will. Talk with them about, about anything, morality. Talk with them, pick any subject of faith. And you'll see that many people have already hardened their heart. They're not open to the Lord's will. Have you hardened your heart? Or is it open to God's will? Well, look at what happened when Christ was betrayed. He was taken away. This is your hour and the power of darkness. Verse 54. And they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. Peter followed at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. Then a maid, seeing him as he sat in the light and gazing at him, said, this man also was with him, but he denied it, saying, Woman, look at what he says. I do not know him. Remember, Jesus said, You will deny that you know me three times. 
I do not know him. This is so important because we are called to know the Lord. And Peter literally says, I don't know him. We'll continue on. Verse 58. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval, interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are saying. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the cock crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now, Luke often gives us some beautiful insights. He gives us insights about Jesus' desire for sinners to reconcile throughout his gospel. He has a very special emphasis on the reconciliation of sinners. And why do I bring this up? Because the moment that Peter denies Jesus the third time, what does Jesus do? What does he do the moment he denies him a third time? Jesus makes eye contact with Peter. Isn't that beautiful? And, well, you might be thinking, he, was Jesus looking at Peter saying, Peter, what's going on? Or was he looking at Peter with love? What do you think he was looking at Peter? How do you think he was looking at Peter? Anger? Despair? Or with love? I tell you, it had to be with love. And what's so beautiful is the concept of being in one's presence. In, in Hebrew, it has the sense of like being in the face of the person, being able to see that person. And here's Jesus looking at Peter the moment that he's denying him, rather than looking away, looking at him. And I bring this up because even in our worst moments, how does God look at us? With love. He wants us to repent. What do we hear again and again in the book of Ezekiel? God does not desire the death of the sinner, but he desires that the sinner do what? Repent and live. And that's what he desires for us. To repent and live. He looks at us with love, and he invites us to repentance. And we can accept that or reject it. What will you do? And so, Peter, you, this is something amazing in Luke's gospel, and it really shows you know, the, the care that Luke wants to take to help us to see how Christ wants sinners to be reconciled and repent. So let us continue forward here. Verse 63. Now, the men who were holding Jesus mocked him and beat him, and they also blindfolded him and asked him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they spoke many other words against him, reviling him. Notice, they're, they're making fun of our Lord. They're hitting him. If you go to Psalm 22, it talks about this one who, who suffers and, and finally is vindicated by God. Jesus quotes the psalm on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you go to the third servant song in Isaiah chapter 50, it talks about one who's the servant of the Lord who has his beard plucked and who's humiliated. And we see in the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ possible references back to that third servant song. As a matter of fact, guess what the first reading is from 
this Sunday, the third servant song. Accident? No. Let's continue on. Verse 66. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. So it's interesting the phrase, You say that I am. Essentially, Jesus is giving an affirmative response. He's not saying, Ah, you say that I am. But he's giving an re affirmative response. We know that because of the context here. Now, this is really interesting. At this moment when Jesus is standing before the chief priest, there's three big questions that come up. You guys aren't sleeping on me, are you? There's three big questions that come up. Messiah, Son of God, and Son of Man. Those three questions are questions that run throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Who is Jesus? Is Jesus truly the Son of God? Is Jesus truly the Messiah? Is Jesus truly the Son of Man who comes upon the clouds in Daniel chapter 7, verses 10 through 14, who rules an eternal kingdom? Those three questions. And notice they all come up right when Jesus is standing before who? The high priest of all people. It's right when he stands before the high priest that suddenly all the questions about his identity come to a climax. And he affirms it. He affirms all three. And it's at that moment that they determine he will be crucified. So you see, you, you see how the Gospels lead us up right to this moment in the trial where he will be sentenced to death. So let us see what happens here. So at the, you know, in verse 71, if you read it, it kind of clears it up. And they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole con company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man perverting our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that, he himself is a Christ, a king.